This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Emotional Investment. Military Operation Names. Antiheroes. And The Eclipse Child. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, it's a little quiet. It's a little hushed. The Doritos go uncrunched. The miniatures unthumped. (laughs) The dice unrattled because the players are involved. They are moved. They have become part of the art. And a mystery Patreon backer whose name become somehow separated from the question during our extensive bureaucratic question vetting process. And our apologies for that. The person responsible has been fired from the Ken and Robin global empire. Yeah. So it's just Ken talks about stuff now. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, and believe me, with this throat, um, I've had to hire a non-union yeah. Robin equivalent. So yes. hopefully. Ken Sinister Monologues will be the new uh, name of the uh podcast from now on. Ken's threatening Zodiac voice talks about stuff. Ken murmurs at uh, Virgil. Ken murmurs. That would be a great podcast. I mean, it would be like ASMR if people really liked hearing who's a best cat. (laughs) There'd be like kibble uh, uh, reward tears. Kibble hut. Yep, that's a good hut. But nonetheless, I'm here for one more week. So for just the one more week, and then we then we'll have a review at the end of the year. How asks our mystery Patreon, who must by now be super super bored uh, with this question. How do you really reach out and spark your players to engage for real, not just be amused intellectually by some historical quirk, but be actually touched by the content of the game? Uh, And that question is not just about role playing; it is, I guess, about all art and certain about all narrative art robin is the answer the same um the answer i think is different because of the nature of the role-playing art which is that uh you are simultaneous all the participants are simultaneously uh, creators and audience so traditionally when you are writing fiction whether it's in prose or let's say you're writing a screenplay and then someone else is directing it you do not 
expect the creator of the art necessarily to be moved by it. On occasion, while writing something horrible, I've been uh, repulsed by it. I've felt the mirror of that emotion. Or, you know, occasionally when there's something very emotional involving the characters, I feel a flicker of that. Uh, but that's not the objective. You can argue that for actors, at least with some schools of acting, the goal is to genuinely feel an emotion while you're creating something. But at the other level of that, you're also maintaining your craft and hitting your mark and making sure that the, you know, you're facing the right way vis-a-vis -vis the camera placement and so on. And so, uh, it, that's an additional, one of many roadblocks. Uh, and, uh, Ken, do you want to think of another obstacle? Why this is a, a big ask? I mean, the other big ask is that because you are, um, uh, in the state of the familiar when you play, it's hard to get yourself out of that state. And that's true for making horror as well as for making meaning or uh, connection, right? Is that what we're talking about? Right. And also, uh, and obstacle number three, uh, a lot of people aren't down for that. Right. Yeah. They, <laughs> they don't want to genuinely feel something. They want to tactically slaughter orcs or they want to explore intellectual historical quirks. He said, uh, trying not to feel personally attacked. Um, <laughs> they, um, uh, they, they, ha they want to maintain an ironic d detachment for any number of reasons, not limited to the fact maybe they've got a ton of drama going on in their life and they would rather not also have uh, pretend drama around uh, their character in a role playing game. Right. So with these uh, at least three complicated obstacles to achieving that, uh, I guess your first route is to, you need buy-in, right? That's, a thing we always say, uh, but it's especially appropriate in this case, you have to make sure that you have players who all share that same goal with you. And that is probably a harder recruitment task than finding a, it's certainly harder recruitment task than finding a random group of friends who each want a slightly different thing out of role-playing as is the typical group. Uh, so you have to find people. We want genuine emotional exploration in this game. And uh, that's, uh, I think is sort of step number one and would be essential step for this, but also uh, tough to do. So, yeah. And again, some individual players and anyone who's GM'd enough, uh, and I would say enough is, you know, maybe depending on your group, certainly in the, in the order of years, not even of decades, has had that one player, uh, and maybe they've had more than one player who said to them, wow, during that, uh, that, uh, parley with the dwarves, I really felt sad for the disaster that was going to happen to their little village. And that really moved me. And I've sort of felt what my character, uh, Thorndell was feeling at that time. And that, and those, uh, sort of immersive role players, uh, like we were talking earlier about the actors whose goal is to always feel what they're doing while also maintaining dice control, uh, immersive role players, their goal is to do this all the time. So there's sort of the other, the other half of this is you could have in theory, a table of all immersive role players whose goal is to uh, in engage emotionally with the story, though maybe not be personally moved, but have the actor's experience, if that's the word I'm looking for, of feeling moved. Is that um, that's a cousin, at least to what our mystery patron is asking. Right. And so if you have a, a group of immersive role players, you have to do certain things in order to uh, feed and water them. Yes. Typically, uh, they like to hone in on the mindset of their character to the exclusion of certain other concerns. So, uh, obviously, uh, you don't want to, you know, set up an emotional situation and then say, okay, now we're going to talk 
uh, tactics of how we're going to assault this goblin warren for the next two hours. Um, and uh, it, uh, some immersive role players have very strict ideas about what pierces the blood-brain barrier between uh, being in and out of character. Uh, some of them, for example, uh, even a system that requires them to step out and think when they spend their hero point or their benefit uh, is uh, too much, that they uh, want to have their character living in a strictly simulationist world in which they are never thinking of themselves as the creative author of a situation. Um, and so uh, you may want to look at a rule set that never uh, does anything like that. Uh, and, for example, Drama System, uh, which is all about creating emotional conflict uh, between players, is not immersive in that way because it does call on you to think of yourself uh, to switch back and forth pretty readily between uh, author and uh, experiencer. And so even if you recruit a whole group of people, you will want to uh, interrogate them uh, you know, with cookies and stuff, not with like a light shining in their eyes, about uh, what that means to them, how uh, difficult is that it for them or desirable to switch from uh, thinking as their character and thinking as a creator. And a lot of this is best done in an after action after you've run one session and you go to your character, your players, and you say... Uh, how, how did everyone like it? I know you wanted a more immersive experience. And someone may say, well, actually, the, the way that the psionics rules work, I, you know, they're too complex and I couldn't stay in character when we did them. And then you have to decide case by case, is it worth keeping these uh, terrific psionics rules or is it worth aiming for that immersive role playing and maybe shaving off some of the uh, felt edges of it? And that's really going to be a case by case, table by table decision there is not a general rule that is no immersive player likes a complex role system because that's palpably untrue as just as untrue as no player is genuinely immersive and they never want to experience anything and they always just want to sit and admire the system like a shiny uh a mustang uh which is also not true so there's players who are true both both of those are true of but there's a vast panoply of types of players and a technique especially an emotional technique that works at one table may not work at another at the next table over even if it has some of the same players because it's a group effort and a group experience, especially when you're trying to develop an emotional connection, because one player screwing around on their phone, not caring, can be as damaging to another player's emotional connection as they can be to the atmosphere of horror in a horror game. Right. Another challenge you're going to run into is that training people who want to play immersively into playing immersively, yet also actively, also doing things that make the story happen. Because a lot of people, when they begin playing uh, immersively and really identifying heavily emotionally with their characters, will stake out their autonomy by saying no to things. Uh, the classic, my character wouldn't do that. And I don't want to mock that response because I think there's something actually very uh, deep about that. Because as uh, little tiny humans, when we first start to uh, establish our autonomy from our parents at about age two or three, <laughs> we do that by going, no, no, no. It's the first thing you, it, it's saying no and autonomy go together. But that in order to have a story actually happen, uh, instead of just a whole, you know, all the characters dig in their heels and refuse to do something because it's out of character for them. That does not actually lead you anywhere emotionally interesting. It's just uh, frustrating. And, and in a mixed group, the frustration is that the, more tactically uh, or narratively oriented players 
uh, then have to get the immersive player to go along with something happening. Uh, but here, if if uh, if everybody is saying no, it's out of character for me to do X or Y or Z, uh, then you neither X nor Y nor Z nor A, B, or C happen. Right. And so uh, you've got to kind of coax them into at least the authorial awareness of you're allowed to identify with your character and do what you want as long as you are doing. You have to do something because, of course, uh, character is action. It isn't uh, inaction. And I guess the sort of the connection, the the, the, the thing I've been uh, assuming is that once you have this player character identification, and I guess we've both been assuming it, is that that's because the the hard part of other narrative art forms, sort of the advantage of role playing is, well, in theory, the player begins by caring about a character because they've got them right there and, and they see their precious hit points or sanity points, you know, dwindling away. So they're already invested to the degree that you hope the audience uh, watching a movie or reading a book is invested because they may not care about the travails of your hero because they just don't like um, uh, uh, George Clooney's face. And so they're like, forget him. He's too pretty to have problems. And, you know, the they're out of it for reasons that are sort of arbitrary and uh, that your craft can't reach. Ideally, you've already beaten that problem because the player is invested in the actions of their except, character. Except you still have that problem because all of the other players may not care about your character. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, and the GM may not. It's like, why? It, because the experience of why do I care about this guy uh, that you get in a passive entertainment, you get that actually all the time in role playing. It's like, well, you know, and it's usually expressed as, why are we hanging out with this guy again? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I guess that's the next uh, step is to build in uh, some uh, inter-character... Bonds and loyalties. Bonds and loyalties to uh, have reasons for people to care about each other, which, again, uh, requires you to do some authorial work. So we're hitting a theme here, which is that uh, it's about finding people who are really into immersion and then... Uh, coaxing them beyond the the limits of immersion i guess uh and encouraging them to also think of themselves as as laying the groundwork at least for something fun now part of that is if you're doing that out of character before the session starts uh um, maybe one of the secrets is to just be more defined about you know when you're doing things in and out of character and of course there's plenty of other people who get emotionally involved with their characters without thinking of them uh, immersion right is yeah. not a necessary ingredient of emotional identification it's yeah just i mean one route to it part of why call of cthulhu works so well is the simple panic at seeing your your sanity points drop creates a a helpful in the sense of it helps play at the table sense of panic uh in the player and so that degree of very basic identification with your character is sort of you know, hardwired into the mechanics almost. And I think that that works with a lot of role playing systems where you look at your, at your hit points going down, or you look at your various super uh, energies uh, being used somehow. And you, and you think, Oh my goodness, here's the situation. What, what would Thagdar do? And once you've asked, what would Thagdar do? That's the first step in identification. And asking what your character would do is a lot of times a standard action that you take in a game because you're asking, would he kill, you know, the orc to the left or the orc to the right? And even that is a decision that you've made about Thagdar and you know Thagdar a little more now. Now, certain emotions as a GM are easier to evoke than others. I think uh, <laughs> Frustration. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, well, well, let's go with the intentional ones. Right. Uh, 
the uh, emotions associated with a horror genre are, uh, I think, pretty uh, easy to hand, uh, and that's uh, revulsion. That's that's the easiest uh, uh, one. It's such a primal response that it's almost not even really a, an emotion. And of course, fear uh, is uh, pretty easy to get at. But being moved, feeling an emotional identification, uh, you know, the uh, sort of uh, uh, pity and sorrow for a, a character either a non-player character or one of the player characters is um, harder to get at. Uh, being sort of morally conflicted is kind of uh, an easier one uh, to get at. But in a way, the question, the, the moments in my gaming history where I think where people really, really got involved emotionally are either A, something really horrifying happened, or B, the, the more complex emotions came about spontaneously from a situation uh, often a long-running character died in a particularly poetic way that were not engineered that were right so the, the question of that the emotion is, is emergent in play really yeah so how do i make how do i cause spontaneity <laughs> right is, is part of this question and and the answer to that of course is you can't but how do can i maybe, manufacture a creative response <laughs> yeah uh well lots of people try to manufacture creative responses uh see first half of steven spielberg's career right um, but here you're, you're just sort of trying to create the circumstances in which something may spontaneously uh, bubble up. And again, you know, drama system tries to do that where the whole currency is about emotional exchange. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've, and, you know, one of the high points of the first drama system campaign I ran was the very last episode where one of the characters uh, died in a particularly uh, exciting and, and moving way. And so... In a way, everything about the structure of the game led to that point, but it also depended on the the character, uh, as, uh, rather dependent on the player, to come up with the, uh, those decisions in play. So you, you can really only, as a GM ever, whatever the thing you're trying to create, uh, create a sandbox, and it's up for uh, up to the players to build the sandcastle. And I guess the, you know, sort of the, the, the 101 advice that I figured we would have done already, but I should mention anyway, is make sure that your NPCs uh, have uh, humanity to them, not in the sense that they're humans, but that they have a thing that can be connected with by the player characters. And so that may mean, you know, uh, an emotion besides greed and rage, <laughs> which are perfectly human emotions, but are hard to, uh, in, involve any larger emotional response to. And I also, uh, speaking of 101 responses, wanted to mention the emotion of triumph, which is very common in F20 games. And I've seen a lot of times now that I'm running, uh, 13th age, there is a, a genuine, it, it's like, you know, a sports team that has come off the field and has just won a hard fought, uh, game and they have a genuine emotional high from that. Um, it's the same sort of genuine emotional high that my players get after they've faced one of the Jonathan Tweed approved overloaded combat scenes and uh, in, in 13th age. And that emotion of triumph is another easy one to generate, but you can maybe spend a little bit of effort uh, trying to reintegrate that into the character's uh, emotional lives where you say, um, what did that, you know, you guys just got through the toughest fight of your career. What did that make Thagdar think about? What was the big emotional moment in his past? And so that can let you build some emotional underpinning for Thagdar. So the next time he goes into something, you're like, oh, I, this is for the memory of those, um, uh, of those goblins that I killed as a young boy. Um, that's why I'm, I'm so mad at these goblins is because they tried to kill my family and I stood them off with my axe when I was just young Thagdar or right. whatever. 
whatever trying it to is. find a scene that brings that into play rather than just saying, describe your character's emotions. It's like, and now we cut to, you know, you're visiting your parents' grave, uh, and, uh, and you, you know, you see your long lost brother there as well. And what do you say to him about what just happened? Right. Yeah. So the, um, so the notion there would be feed into genuine emotions that do happen at the table, whether they're triumph or horror or whatever, try and give those emotions, even if they're felt by the players, a connection to the character's interior life, create scenes that feed on those and create NPCs who can usefully respond to amplify or instill those emotions in at least a character theoretically on paper such that you would not think it was ridiculous if you read it in a book, right? Well, that, that sounds like a summation to me. It does. Uh, it does sound ergo, like a summation. Uh, it's time for us to uh, exit uh, through the uh, cooling mist of an upcoming commercial message and in to our next segment. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pelgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In, in Cthulhu, Cthulhu City. The operational maps on the wall and the invective hurled by a drill sergeant tell us that We've not only entered the history hut, but this hut is like literally a canvas hut. It's sort of camouflaged because we've entered a, a military installment of the history hut at the behest of Patreon backer, Auntie Aloma, who asks, Moonlight Maze, Rolling Thunder, Firework Fanfare, Midnight Jackal, military operations often have super evocative names. Why is that? Who comes up with them? Are there hidden meanings? And why do British operations tend to have silly names? Uh, Ken, my first observation would be that the uh, they don't make military operation names like they used to. No, they that, do not. That uh, back in the day, you could tell it was military brass who came up with them, and they sounded more like code names because, of course, the original point of them was to obscure the purpose of the operation from the enemy. Right. Uh, but these days, since you you know tend to declare war on CNN, the impulse is obviously. You know, recent military operation names, particularly American ones, have been to the PR shop first. Right. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm pretty sure that Saddam Hussein did not sit there thinking, oh, man, I wonder who's in the desert that Desert Storm is going to attack. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I feel bad for the Libyans now. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Yeah. Right. It's good old-fashioned overlord. <laughs> right. You know. Could have been anything. It, it's Yeah, it still sounds uh, very, very majestic and uh, and ass-kicky, but... It's uh, it doesn't have that sort of uh, PR uh, sting to it, or, uh, or, or even more codenaming is Operation Chattanooga Choo Choo. 
right. uh, which was just named after a pop song at the time. And it's sort of a silly one, but uh, that was a bombing raid. So it wasn't so right. uh, silly if you were a, a, a German soldier or civilian who uh, got a bomb dropped on them. And that violates, by the way, one of Churchill's rules. Churchill sort of formalized the creation of uh, military code names in 1943. The Hun, the Kaiser's Germans, had begun the process because the, the Germans, especially in the World War One era, did nothing non-theatrically. So they would give things names like Valkyrie and Ascension and, and cool evocative opera names. Uh, and then that practice spread to the other uh, combatants because they were like, how come the Germans get cool code names? How come we ha- can't have cool code names? And then it happened, uh, at, you know, at the beginning of the war, uh, you had uh, your sort of what were called planning names. So the German plan to invade uh, France was code was case red and their plan to invade Belgium was case yellow. And uh, the United States had the same system where plan orange was the attack on Japan. Uh, plan red was an attack on uh, the hated British. If they'd looked at us backwards, um, plan blue was an attack on, I think it was France. Um, so it was just, you had your sort of ongoing war plans and they would have code names, but again, I'm pretty sure no one didn't know what Plan Orange meant, even in the Japanese high command. They knew that America was planning to fight a war with them in the Pacific. That's the whole point of having navies in the Pacific at the time. So um, they had these sort of ge- uh, generic names. Then because World War II, A, increased the need for a ton of, co- of code names, Churchill says um, they shouldn't be, be sounding boastful and overconfident. So no Operation Inevitable Victory, because what if it isn't? Um, you don't use living people's names because you don't want to create confusion or a bad look or maybe he was worried someone would have operation anthony eden that would be super successful and people would say (laughs) oops that's not good and he says don't use um silly names like bunny hug or ballyhoo so you don't have to tell someone's grieving mom that their son was killed in operation bunny hug and i think that chattanooga choo-choo is maybe on the boundary of that and it sounds like the americans named it and just ignored the memo and then um he suggested racehorses everyone loves racehorses horse names they're awesome and, Use and race they all have names. weird and evocative names too so. right so so knock knock yourself out um and then that became a uh ongoing uh system by which people just came up with a list of pre-approved na- uh, names like crusader and sword and ajax and and uh, uh humboldt and whatever else and then people could go through and pick them off the list uh, at random in um uh, the united states the defense department set up their own list and the person who was picking them was usually sort of the middle ranking guy in the Pentagon who was in charge, which is why every now and again, you get a cool name like Operation Rolling Thunder, which sounds like what it is, a lengthy bombing campaign or Operation Linebacker, which is about smashing into the Vietnamese air defenses and pushing them back, that kind of thing. So you have um uh, sort of cool sounding, sort of evocative, sort of codenamey code names they still keep the specifics hidden like no one knows operation arc light is a covert bombing um uh campaign because it could mean anything but i i suppose eventually you've run enough arc light missions people know what you're talking about uh right now do you do you agree with uh auntie's 
uh, suggestion that the British names are uh, kind of silly? I don't know that they're any sillier than American names. I think Auntie may be more familiar with British names, but as you say, we had Operation Ch- Chattanooga Choo Choo. We've had um, uh, Operation Paul Bunyan, which was on the Korean uh, uh, the Korean War. Um, we had. Um, uh, it seems silly until you remember how tall he was, right? And how yeah. stompy his ox was, yeah, and how scary he would be if you didn't know that he was the friend to everyone except trees, and and so. Um, um, uh, uh, now there's a system that the Defense Department has. It has a computer system uh, called NICA, which is short for, because this is the military, code word, nickname, and exercise term system. So <laughs> it's a code name for a code name system. That, that I think has a synonym for code name right in there. That's okay. Right. So we have, um, I mean, we have some pretty, uh, you know, weird nicknames uh, like Operation Acid Gambit. That's that's a that's as weird a name as the British ever came up with, I think. Yeah, and that's the uh, the naming style that I sort of tried to evoke for the Ezoterrorists, because in that game, the uh, the good guys who you work for uh, assign operation names to each case, but basically they take two different, usually nouns, but two different sort of exotic words and just put them together randomly, because there the idea is you definitely don't want your enemy, who may be a mind reading monster to know what you think is going on so that they uh, they sound evocative, but they're just two random names uh, sort of uh, stuck together, which of course is, you know, sort of be like jumbo gain or, you know, uh, uh, hero plant or, or whatever. So that they're uh, things that are uh, just slightly odd and strange and meaningful only to you and, and to your, uh, you know, you as investigators, you don't invest any particular meaning in them, but it does sound like something, uh, secret and, and odd is going on. Um, yeah. I'm going to give you my least favorite uh, military operation name, which was All right. uh, Just Cause. <laughs> yes, that that was the one that was the began the era, as you say, of of uh, declaring war on CNN. Was the notion that you can have the name of the operation can be propaganda for the operation. So if you have Operation Just Cause, which is terrible, it was the invasion of Panama, which, you know, is, is its own yeah. kind of thing. If, but if the name is terrible. Operation the lawyers aren't so sure about this right. one. Well, the, 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 the guys on the ground apparently called it Operation Just Because. Right. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> yes, then you also want to run it by, uh, see what the, the wise asses who actually have to, get shot at are going to call it. Yes. Like every, like every name you should, you could, you should find a bunch of eighth graders and see what they think about it. Um, uh, and so the, my, uh, favorite in the category of dumb Pentagon, uh, propaganda names is operation inherent resolve, which is <laughs> the campaign against ISIS in Syria and, uh, and Iraq. And so it's, it's like, that is, that is literally the opposite of what it sounds like because it's the sort of thing you say to psych yourself up for doing something. No, we really do want to do this. We're not just half-assing this like we have the, the war in the Middle East for the last decade. Yeah. We, we just, we, oh, we, we have such inherent resolve. Operation intent to succeed. <laughs> Operation, <laughs> uh, be a better guy. Operation, yeah. uh, try hard. Operation, yeah, you're special. Operation, uh, darn it, people like us. Um, those are good operations. Now, currently the, uh, uh, the sort of the ones down below that, the, the non CNN ones or the ones that are not first picked from CNN do come off of NICA and NICA assigns the first name of the two word operation, uh, has to come from a set of, of, of uh, an area of the alphabet and each U.S. military command has its own area of the alphabet. So Africa command, good pick, 
from JS to JZ, NS to NZ, and OA to OF, and anything in that could be Africa, Africa Command's name. And so that's why when they attacked Libya in 2011, it was Odyssey Dawn, because it's Odyssey, right? Um, and that's in their area. But sometimes the names are just picked by people because, uh, for example, the Phoenix operation in South Vietnam, the assassination program was picked because the president of South Vietnam was superstitious and believed that the Fung, uh, the Fung Huang, the, the, the magical Phoenix bird was his sort of personal good luck symbol. And so they were like, well, how do we get South Vietnam to sign off on what we want? Oh, name it after his magic bird. So that's, that's why it's operation Phoenix. with an audience of one. Exactly. Uh, well, I think, uh, our operation to explain military operation names has been, uh, Let's call this Operation Entirely Successful. Operation Absolutely True. And uh, move on uh, via Operation Through the Next Commercial to our next segment. Today, Swedish role-playing games are celebrated all over the world, with multiple titles being translated into English and other languages. Tova Gilbring of Askvageln has been a champion for Swedish role-playing games for three decades. Together with her husband Anders, they have published and developed games, gaming magazines, and hosted gaming events at conventions all over Sweden. But now Tova's breast cancer is back, and Anders has organized a crowdfunding campaign to buy her time. Time to make the rest of her life about more than surviving. Time to devote herself to what she loves, the creation and publication of new gaming titles. Titles like additional volumes in the Best of Phoenix series. The Choose Your Own Adventure book, Writer of the Black Sun, by Sven Harder. Second comic strip album of Ake Brazinius's Burger Barbaren. And Asa Rus's cool keyring RPG in an English edition. The full game compact enough to fit on a keyring. And of course, a multitude of scenarios, source books, and choose your own adventures for Western, their Wild West role-playing dream project. Add some boom to Tova's ultimate blast of creative fireworks. Go to Kickstarter and search Love Tova. L-O-V-E-T-O-V-E. Or follow the link in the show notes. Go from anti-hero to regular hero by leaguing yourself with Patreon backers exactly like Yuri Horneman, Rob Abrazado, Robert King, Brendan Clarity, and Brian Malcolm. We enter through the proscenium to the mise-en-scene, where around us are displayed the masks of comedy and tragedy, the caryatids of motion and emotion. Yes, we are in the abstract, the highly stark, the 60s TV show about a theater hut known as the Narrative Hut. And here in the Narrative Hut, we go from the abstract to the uh, specific, not through the power of Strindberg, but through the power of narrative examples, and in this case, we're talking narrative examples of the American anti-hero, because Robin, as a Canadian, is fascinated by nothing so much as Americans who seem also to define themselves as not the same as Americans. So, Robin, what do you got for us on the American anti-hero? So, I was thinking about the different depictions of the anti-hero while watching uh, an obscure sort of uh, 
forgotten near masterpiece called A Wild Seed from 1965, which has uh, Michael Parks as a young, fresh-faced method actor in it. And uh, it's, the film is interesting because it's uh, shot in 65, but it sort of comes from an earlier era of the way you depicted the rebel hero. Uh, and it's like just the absolute last minute when you could depict him as sort of a existential 50s guy because two seconds later, it was going to be the 60s for real. And right. you'd have a totally different uh, uh, rebel hero. So uh, that made me sort of think back to different phases of how American pop culture has depicted uh, the anti-hero. And without getting into the semantics hut, because the semantics hut is very long and tedious. Right. Uh, for these purposes. And it's, and, and it's full of spiders, I think. Yes. It's, we we it's, need to have the guy in to clean that out. Yes. And then you have to define who what spider means. And right. Yeah, it's exactly. not good. It's not like, good I'm a scorpion. I'm a different kind of arthropod entirely. There's right. an argument of are arthropods arachnids. And it, oh, Jesus. It's just, you don't need that. So for the purpose of this, let's define... Uh, the anti-hero as the uh, character who you uh, identify with in uh, his or her uh, rebe rebellion against the social norms that you as an audience member are generally expected to uphold. And that's one definition. And as I suggested, if we did the semantics, we could come up with a bunch of other ones. Uh, we could go back further in history and see who the first anti-hero was. But in American pop culture, it seems to me that uh, the earliest sort of explosion of anti-heroes where there is and suddenly, you know, not just uh, one protagonist who might fit that definition, but a whole genre of them comes with the rise of the gangster film in the 30s. So right. we have uh, Little Caesar and all of the other uh, gangster films, a lot of them from Warner Brothers, but not all of them, where suddenly you are following the rise and fall of the bad guy. Again, not unprecedented. That's Macbeth. Macbeth is a right. gangster yeah. uh, play. Uh, but this uh, definitely recast initially sort of uh, tragic heroes. Little Caesar played by Everett G. Robinson is uh, one of the very first of those. And uh, the sort of final part of that uh, into the noir era in 48 is James Cagney in White Heat. Yeah. where he's sort of an apocalyptic anti-hero where, you know, he not to spoil the ending of that film for it, for anybody, if you haven't seen it, but the ending of that film is sort of the end of the gangster uh, genre in its first uh, cycle at any rate, uh, it's most apocalyptic version. And so uh, that anti-hero is sort of a, a kind of a anti-cap, you know, a, a reversed capitalist, right? That he is taking the American dream uh, with uh, he's taking shortcuts using a Tommy gun to get there. And it's usually sort of a rise and fall story where you initially sympathize with uh, the striving young scrappy gangster often played at first by a juvenile actor and who uh, uh, is then seen as an adult. And then he's an underdog. And then as he becomes more of an overdog, it's sort of a, a reverse Horatio Alger story. The anti-hero's success becomes more and more monstrous until then you uh, accept their failure with gratitude. But then along the way, you've been able to indulge in some of your sort of uh, darker impulses. And so that's sort of the, the predominant anti-hero of, uh, of the 30s up to sort of the beginning 
of World War II. And as you imply, none of these, uh, examples necessarily die with their decade. Uh, the, you know, the, the little Caesar anti-hero, uh, comes back again and again as the American gangster movie comes back again and again. Paul Muni's Scarface becomes Al Pacino's Scarface 50 years later with pretty much no change whatsoever, except accent. Right. And, uh, the level of brutality you can show. Right. But that's, that's a film question. The character is just as brutal and just as anti capitalist or dark capitalist or whatever you want to call uh gangster capitalist uh, as he was in 1932 right all of these things can be recapitulated later and what i'm talking about is sort of their their heyday of when they were fresh and particularly tuned into the, the zeitgeist so right. there's sort of a suspension in the anti-hero uh during the war years because uh you don't want a hero who's opposed to uh general cultural norms who you want to f- fantasize about uh, breaking society during the war, uh, then you're, you know, that's when you have the straight up hero who goes and, uh, you know, fights in an existential struggle to survive. And, and that, and that feeds into the more conventional American hero, who is the American hero who disregards the part of culture that interferes with heroism. So your Hawkeye Natty Bumpo type who goes out and he can't live in the city where all of the readers of James Fenimore Cooper live. If he's going to be a hero, he has to be out in the wilderness uh, with the Indians. And similarly, in the 40s, you have your Errol Flynn hero who, you know, he can't just do what the military tells him to. He's got to go out and go down on that one extra mission to be a, a, a better hero than than the military even will allow him to. And that's not so much rejecting the cultural norm as it is saying above the cultural norm, there is a special kind of hero who the culture then uh, reincorporates at the end. They, they are welcomed back into the culture. Uh, they, they get married. They get a, a medal. They get an award. They get whatever it is that implies that, yes, the culture understands that sometimes you have to be even more heroic than the culture's uh, norms. But that's sort of the extra hero, not the anti-hero. Even if an Errol Flynn could play either one if if you if you wanted him to, and depending on the script or the director, something that it seems like it's going to be an extra hero maybe might be an anti-hero in someone else's reading. Right, and there's a whole subgenre of war films about where the the through line is the uh, sort of the field level commander, the lieutenant or the the captain who has to actually go out and fight is in a uh, struggle over tactics with the blinkered uh, rear echelon command and he reforms the system by knowing better what the uh, necessary tactic is and ultimately getting the brass to sign on to that. So uh, he's sort of a both a fighting man and a bureaucratic hero who uh, reforms the power structure uh, in the way that it, it needs to be practically. But after the war, that same guy, the soldier character, comes back and becomes the noir hero because one of the big threads of film noir is the returning veteran who has uh, uh, had a uh, has a background of horror and violence and is now being expected to return to the domesticity of uh, an America that has a hidden dark side that his violent uh, past draws him toward. And so there's a bunch of different versions of that from the uh, sort of solo uh, white knight detective who's more, he's less of an anti-hero, but often has uh, a sort of a cynical view of humanity that makes him uh, sort of a, interestingly ambiguous enforcer of social norms. So Philip uh, Marlowe, of course, is a big example of that, where he sees the corruption of society without uh, getting it on him, famously. Right, that's where your extra hero and your anti-hero begin to blend around the other way. 
because, you know, they're at odds with the cops usually, but they're bringing the murderer to justice. So that's good, right? Right. Um, but then you have uh, other characters like uh, uh, Walter Neff and Double Indemnity or all sorts of sort of doomed heroes who are drawn toward their destruction or flirtation with destruction that they then uh, narrowly avoid due to the strictures of the Hayes Code. And uh, so there's also a lot of films. Or, about, or they are destroyed by it, by the strictures of the Hayes Code. Yes. Well, <laughs> one or the other. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of noir movies, though, where suddenly the everybody gets out of jail free and you can tell that. Uh, that's not the way the writer originally wrote it, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe the studio said we need a happy end. But anyway, um, there's a whole uh, subgenre of films about the sort of the bored uh, domestic guy who is suddenly drawn often uh, by the the allure of a dangerous woman into a, a world of uh, degradation and disaster. And, and uh, you know, the most extreme version of that is Nightmare Alley. Uh, and so you've got the sort of noir hero who... Uh, and then begins to sort of shade into kind of the existential rebel. And that's Marlon Brando and the wild one, right? Where the famous line is, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? What do you, what do you got? Right. And so, uh, as the fifties comes on and the, uh, the, the philosophical influence of existentialism arrives in America, you sort of, uh, move from the sort of, uh, doomed war veteran into the sort of his, sort of rootless younger brother in a leather jacket or a motorcycle who is just, uh, he's an anti-hero because he doesn't know how to conform or doesn't want to face uh, conformity. So he's related to the previous guy, but he's, he's a little different in part of that fifties culture. And so, uh, wild seed, which I was mentioning earlier is sort of a, a very late, uh, exponent of that. And the, and the existential hero is the first one of these movies that actually begins to indict the the mass culture by the notion that the existential hero is not just following a dark or perverted version of a moral code, but is following maybe even a better moral code that they uh, that they're that they're at least a purer person because they are a, a pure rebel or they are a nobler person because they have an individual vision that uh, society simply can't see. And you get a, a ton of that. And that, of course, feeds into your easy writer counterculture era because that was about nothing so much as pursuit of the individual uh, gospel within or the individual bliss within right and so he's the uh the, the leather jacket is shed for the uh, the fringed buckskin jacket the sort of hippie uh anti-hero uh, kind of uh harkens back to sort of the the agrarian past there's uh you know he's natty bumpo with a joint yeah and also it becomes so much easier for uh, not just, you know, commercial storytelling, but commercial everything to reincorporate, uh, hippies, uh, and free love and the counterculture in general as a marketing tactic. So the existential heroes are relatively few and far b- between, but everything has got hippies in it after 1967. I mean, just the, the hippies show up in movies where they have no business being just because they're so easy, a uh, shorthand, like in the movie of children of men, where the, the math doesn't work for Michael Caine's character to be a hippie, but there he is. He's a hippie because it's easier than making him a guy who can't let the eighties or nineties go, which is how the actual years should have worked out. But yeah, he's a hippie. He's because, on Homer Simpson time. Right. Yeah. The, the symbology of that hippie that is so easily mediated and easily marketed and easily explained to the audience that 
that counterculture anti-hero winds up expanding uh his remit even more i think than the noir hero or the gangster hero he's he's still around now if you look at a character if they have any of the signifiers of the 60s they're being written probably lazily as an anti-hero for you the uh, audience to 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 uh, know where they slot into the story and either identify with or reject for the proper hero who like well i understand what you're saying but we have to you know break the firewall first or whatever right and in fact not only does the hippie continue to exist but it has all sorts of precursors right that arguably the first big anti-hero in anglo culture is is byron and <laughs> you know his bohemian set they were you know uh, hippies with different substances, but right, uh, better dressed though. Yeah, sure, but uh, it, you know, uh, it, it was the it was the same ethos uh, uh, recurring. The sort yes. of the, the libertine here. Yes, drug use and free love are always going to be popular. Um, uh, I think that that's a, that's just a good sell. Right, and with any cu- counterculture, of course, is always followed by a a, a counter counterculture, uh, and so uh, once you get through the the slough of the seventies into the Reagan era, you have. Uh, this sort of symbolic return of hearkening back to uh, the Hollywood version of, of American values. And you have the counter reaction to that in the form of the nihilist antihero uh, who is trying to point out the uh, what the uh, writers identify as the the, the darkness between uh, behind the the new sunny facade of morning in America and. And it was usually not styled as a punk. It was at that point where the actual sort of music and countercultural rebellion had gone, but is written uh, and styled more as the existential hero or uh, maybe as the noir hero, depending. Right. And here's where I think the influence of uh, 90s, uh, of 80s and 90s comic books uh, really start, starts to come through and that the uh, reflections of this in movies are less clear than, you know, uh, Alan Moore and Garth Ennis and the uh, other uh, British wise asses and outsiders who started uh, creating the, uh, and this is where we get into the, sort of the geek culture, the, the sort of goth, the, the darkest of the darkest timeline, dark guys, uh, and uh, the, you know, the guy with the trench coat and the katana or uh, Wolverine turns out to be, you know, sort of an example of kind of the, the nihilist hero, the uh, indulger in violence, the, a rejecter of norms and it becomes sort of a more uh, a selfish inward looking uh, version of uh, the anti-hero that's driven by uh, again the desire to play with dark themes but also a prevailing cynicism which is the the response to the uh, to the, the the reagan hero is being confronted by you know a uh, a Garth Morrison character. Right. Uh, speaking of weird outliers, um, uh, the other day I was showing some of, uh, the children who I, I know, uh, good friends, but through no fault of their own, they're young. Uh, the movie cue the winged serpent, the Larry oh, yes. Cohen classic. It's an amazingly good movie. Great. Michael Moriarty performance. Because, at the center is Michael Moriarty as exactly this kind of guy, this sort of nihilist, anti-Reagan, selfish, you know, interior driven, you know, it's, it's, it's a great method performance. Uh, while meanwhile, you know, everyone else is just, you know, larding the cheese onto the film. He's like, I'm a guy who found a, a pterodactyl that eats people. Ah, screw it. And he's like, it's just the amazing connection of this 
you know, uh, what in a, in a better or worse movie would be a fully standard character with this awesome monster movie where this Tyrannodon is flying around killing people in New York City. And that's not a spoiler, by the way. That happens in like the first five minutes of the movie. You, you know what's going on, but. That's an example of where you can find these anti-heroes and they sort of lodge themselves into all the other narrative forms. Like you were saying, they go into comic books, but they also go into the monster movie. They go into the crime film, obviously, but they also go into, um, uh, the, the romantic comedy. You'll, you'll see, uh, characters who are like that, who are identified as the opposite of the, um, uh, of the, of the hero who is a middle ground between the conforming Baxter and the weirdo sociopath who is usually cast as someone's best friend, uh, so that they can marry the girl and make society correct. Right. The, the comic nihilist is, uh, Bill Murray and just right. about any in Bill Murray everything. In, yeah. in his, in his prime. Right. And, and he's the, there's that sort of, uh, uh, mockery of authority that is now untethered from any uh, ideology, right? That for yeah. a nihilist, the idea of changing the world has suddenly become ridiculous. We saw but again that- in the 80s, I mean, the great thing about the great, one of the, many of the great things about the 80s are that the Bill Murray nihilist winds up being the Errol Flynn hero, right? That the Bill Murray nihilist who doesn't believe in psychic powers is the hero of Ghostbusters. The Bill Murray nihilist in Stripes becomes the Errol Flynn hero who miraculously, you know, solves the problem, uh, defeats, you know, minor communism, you know, it, it, it so that, uh, that nihilist antihero gets reincorporated in the course of the film uh, while still getting to be play, uh, to play himself for, for laughs. Right. Because whereas, you know, the Marlon Brando line, uh, what do you got is the epitome of that style of antihero, the line from meatballs. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter is the epitome of the, uh, 80s, 90s, uh, nihilist hero. And that hero, uh, made it a, a good ways along and then, uh, once you take that character, that alienated character, and give him depth, you come to the uh, our current golden age of television and the damaged cable man. And so you have these... <laughs> Who is not the cable guy played by uh, Jim Carrey, as right. I thought when I read this in the script. I was like, that's an odd choice. Uh, but no, you mean like the guy who's the ostensible hero of a, of a cable drama, but who somehow possesses no narrative energy as though he were an immersive role player. To do a flashback. Well, that, that that's Ken. Uh, <laughs> that's a value judgment there. But I, I am indeed talking about Don Draper and Tony Soprano and Walter White and uh, whoever David Duchovny played in at California Cation. The uh, like David Duchovny, apparently. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently. Um, and so this is the you know the the uh, dramatic journey to the dark side, and this character. Uh, Walter White. No, Walter White is 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 genuinely driven. That's good narrative. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's little Caesar. But that's Caesar. Macbeth again. <laughs> yeah, it's Macbeth. It's little Caesar. He goes from a, from a mouse to a monster. Uh, Don Draper, uh, deliberately evokes the existential fifties hero. So that's an example of recapitulation where that, you know, character will recur in later eras. And, uh, you know, uh, Tony Soprano, oddly enough, is sort of surprisingly unlike, uh, little Caesar and the gangster here. Like, there's occasional, explosions of gangster violence but it's a more sort of it's a quotidian sort of almost sort of anti-gangster uh gangster saga in that it's about you know pulling him down into domestic life and having anxiety attacks and uh even uh his uh, his demise spoilers 
is uh, notoriously <laughs> anticlimactic. Yes, uh, it it re- it uh, rejects catharsis throughout the whole series, which is part of I think a lot of people's problems with it, uh, and uh, and and the reason that it sort of bounced off a lot of folks. Um, the reason it bounced off me is it was a soap opera. And I'm tired of soap operas. Uh, but that's got nothing to do with the hero who was terrific. I mean, Tony Soprano, I would, I would love to have watched a show about him. And it's going to be interesting now to see, uh, the, uh, suddenly damaged men are in ill repute. <laughs> it's they as though they've caused and, uh, inflict damage. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, wait, now we're, if only okay. the Hayes Code were around to tell us what happens to them. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the anti hero now because guess what? We elected a damaged, TV personality character as president. Well, we didn't. Uh, yeah, well, no, some of you did. You you guys elected a a, a Baxter. So obviously, at some point, there's going to be a, a romantic hero is going to come and win Canada away from that guy. Well, uh, Canada has uh, has just a, a straight up uh, sunny happy hero. Which is, right. Uh, uh, it's nice to be a little sheltered at this point. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? What is the reaction to you know taking you know all of these sort of this dark? You know, he's a vivid TV character. Uh, but he's dark and driven and broken and breaks the people around him. Uh, you know, how, what's going to happen to, uh, is there a need for an anti-hero in, uh, a world where the bad guy is president? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that you can see some of that in the entirely juvenile hashtag resistance movement, that they're identifying themselves with a very uncomplicated hero now, as opposed to these exact same people would, deny straight up that they want anything uncomplicated in their art. But once the, you know, the, you know, the, uh, pedal hits the metal, they want Superman, not Batman. They want, um, uh, straight up truth, justice in the American way, not a, 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 uh, weirdly compromised, uh, character. Uh, this is the same question that once the counterculture becomes the culture, how do you paint the counterculture? Who rebels against the rebels once the rebels run uh, society? And that was something that Hollywood was just beginning to sort of try and figure out. I think superheroes sort of came as a as a welcome re- uh, release from having to write a story in which everything that the uh, that the easy writer characters wanted is now the orthodoxy. And how do you write a rebellion against that? And now we can just now we can just punch. CGI people uh, with with no characterization for a decade and going. And so maybe that's the solution is do literally nothing for a while. In fact, that brings us to the, the next question. What happens when nerd culture becomes omnipresent pop culture, which is a different question and therefore leads uh, us to a different hut, perhaps leads us to a different hut. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracies 
conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the cobweb stairs where we will once again jauntily wave at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky who will nonetheless glower back at us and will breeze on by into the Edwardian parlor where, sitting in his smoking jacket, is the consulting occultist. And this time, Patreon backer Tim Vert has been consulting with the consulting occultist, asking uh, about a uh, possible attempt to create a moon child, or perhaps I would argue an eclipse child, uh, and so this, of course, will bring us back in a uh, previous episode where, uh, Ken, you encountered your friend the Eclipse. Uh, so, kids, uh, I'm going to read uh, a portion of this guy's uh, Craigslist uh, notice that was up for a little while, taken down. Uh, and if you're w- listening to this episode with your parents, don't worry, I'm going to leave out the parts that would uh, cause your parents to be embarrassed. Right. This, this will be a G-rated uh, wanted ad. Right. Wanted. Woman who wants to conceive child during totality eclipse in Oregon. (laughs) I am 40 years of age, Caucasian male from Europe. My heritage is strong and pure. Okay, guy. (laughs) Right, yeah. All right. We've got a line in you already. Okay. Uh, Operation Inherent Resolve starting Uh, now. Yeah. Well, okay. We're we're watching you. My looks, instinct, knowledge, and strength is 100% pure and 100% lethal. Well, there he's identified with his character. The, yes, he's he's uh, fudged his character and rolled uh, 18.00 on yep. strength. I'm looking for a worthy female. Okay, yeah, yeah, another red flag. With strong genes. Uh-huh, yeah, gotcha. Beauty and smarts. To join me to experience the totality eclipse in Oregon. Exact place not set. If we have chemistry... I would like to, for us to make love while the eclipse is happening. There we go. Yeah. Uh, well, it, he he is. It is dependent on chemistry. So. Yeah. See, that's like literally the first sentence that would not make you run screaming into the night, and it would still make you run screaming into the night. Right. But maybe so a little 17 slower. Seventeen red flags. But, <laughs> right. You know, he is he is uh, hip to con- to consent. When yeah. totality occurs, we will conceive a child that will be on the next <laughs> level of human evolution. <laughs> We will make love together. Directed towards the sun. Everything will be aligned in the local universe. Both of our cosmic energy will be aligned with the planets. Uh, In a brief moment of ecstasy, we will understand everything and together create a new universe full of love. So, you know, all that scary Aryan stuff, he just, he's he's all about the love. Yeah. He's a love Aryan. You must like cats. (laughs) Yeah. Drugs are okay. Nitrous oxide, while uh, we experience totality and conception, is okay with me. So he's just... He's not saying it's a, it's a necessary, but he's he's just putting that out there. Just open to it, if so you will. So, uh, that that of course was a, a while ago. It's now January, so that's uh, that's five months. If this happened, it means uh, we're expecting the eclipse child in May. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this uh, if it happened would have happened somewhere in Oregon. So you you were there for the eclipse, but not in Oregon. I was not in Oregon, sir. And and you felt a lot of cosmic energy, but I guess I not that cosmic energy. No, so, at, at no point did any of us um, uh, do that. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, what's the, the, the history? I mean, it may have on... been that we just didn't have nitrous oxide. That may have been the, the problem. Right. Or it may have been that no one was interested. <laughs> the, the, the chemistry was the not The chemistry there. was not right. And, you know, at most, 
uh, you know, maybe one of you is 82% pure. Yeah, um, right. And that's, uh, that, that's, uh, and that's a high 82. Yeah. I didn't say you, but <laughs> yeah. someone else. Oh, it was group. not me. I don't know. <laughs> I think it may have been, uh, Maud, the, um, uh, the, 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 the anime character that was drawn on a piece of cardboard in the car. I think she may have been our, our eclipse baby. There you go. Um, so what's, what's the, the history on, on moon children? When did this, uh, uh, first, uh, enter our uh, cosmic or mundane consciousness. I believe that it goes back, and I am open to correction on this, but I believe that it goes back to my buddy, Alistair Crowley, and his 1917 novel, Moonchild, which was not published until 1923, and then was later published in 1929 by Mandrake Press. And in Moonchild, guess what? There's a magical war over an unborn child and Crowley uh, tuckerized all of his magical friends into it. And so um, uh, they're all engaged in uh, an attempt to create a magical child that will um, uh, impregnate a, a girl with an ethereal energy uh, and that will make the moon child. And, uh, there is an evil magician, uh, named Arth Waite, who is, of course, Arthur Waite, uh, A.E. Waite, my buddy, um, uh, who's, uh, trying to prevent the moon child from being made or to try and bring the moon child into the, the ambit, if you will, of the central powers. Right. And, and when Alester Crowley is making you the bad guy, some, someone is being traduced. It means you are the good guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it means. Um, uh, uh so anyway, um, uh, th- I believe that is where, uh, the, the concept certainly enters the mainstream, such as it is, of occultism. Crowley may have picked it up from somewhere else, but he was, uh, uh, say what you want about him. He was a gifted, uh, imaginer of things. And so I think that the moon child is possibly his own special, uh, contribution to the world. Right. Now, uh, did anyone, uh, after that, uh, before we get to Mr. Nitrous Oxide, uh, attempt to, uh, realize that in, in reality? Uh, most famously, there is the Babylon working, um, uh, in 1946 performed by, uh, the physicist, uh, and occultist, uh, John Whiteside Parsons and his buddy, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, the pulp author and, uh, who would never be heard from again in history and, and, and otherwise obscure figure. Um, uh, and they were going to attempt to create a, uh, moon child, uh, with a, uh, young redheaded lady who turned up on Parson's doorstep named Marjorie Cameron. And she seemed open to going out into the desert and having a Babylon working, worked upon her. And, and presumably liked cats. Uh, she, I, I, I think that, uh, I have Marjorie Cameron's autobiography, which I haven't read. Um, but I do, th- or maybe it was a biography of her. Either, either way, I haven't read it. But the larger point being, um, uh, I think she probably did like cats. I think she was a cat liker and drugs were also okay. So who do we think we will get? Uh, if, if in fact, uh, there's an eclipse child, this is sort of, uh, different than a moon child. Uh, what, what does, what powers can we expect, uh, in our, uh, sort of, uh, I guess we're setting a, an occult uh, adventure in uh, oh, let's let's say uh, twenty uh, thirty eight. Our our eclipse child has uh, has become a young adult. Uh, what sort of powers does he uh, wield, and what sort of trouble is he up to? Well, the point of having the moon child is to unify, you know, basically. Um, uh, heaven and earth uh you you take a, a a cosmic or a stellar energy and you put it into the earthly energy you go from the macrocosm down to the microcosm so the moon child 
you know, begins with your sort of maybe your your Damien or your Omen type uh, behavior, unless they're a good moon child, you know, if you know, the energy is right. On, based on the text of the ad, I'm I'm assuming this is going to go awry. <laughs> you think it's going to go awry? Yeah. Call me crazy. <laughs> that's weird. But that's that's um, my... Uh, well, it might, it might, here's story. what it, it, here's what it is. It might go awry, but in a good way, because the guy, uh, Caucasian male from Europe with his heritage strong and pure, I think we all know what kind of moon child he wanted. But let's say that this kid is brought up to be the Aryan Damien, if you, to coin a phrase, and then his moon child powers are like, you know, coursing through him, his eclipse child powers are coursing through him, and he becomes a rebel against the cause that brought him up, because the stars don't care uh, whether you're uh, Aryan or, or a non-Aryan. They orbit their, in their other courses. His oneness is genuine. And so, he becomes a rebel against a different kind of rebel. And you have maybe a magical war, because the counterculture, uh, hippie, free love, everyone is cool, energies attract him, but he realizes that they're wrong too. You could have a whole on man who fell to earth, uh, stranger in a strange land type operation where no human approach to the cosmic is true and our moon child is trying to teach them and maybe the moon child is going to wind up martyred like happens to your cosmic uh, entities or maybe the moon child is going to get sick of things in a superhero way and start flying around and zapping people with his eclipse powers uh, so this implies that the uh, the campaign is that the investigators uh, find themselves in custody of uh, the moon child uh, which in fact is one of the sub threads of uh, the Yellow King game that I'm running for my own group, and it's up to them to sort of direct him uh, to, uh, you know, different potential uh, versions of himself, and uh, presumably to direct him to use his uh, powers for good, and uh, not the way that dear old dad had in mind. But but while not trying to cause him to rebel against them, uh, and say, I'll use my powers for good the way I want to, and start robbing banks like um, uh, Scarface. Uh, yes, there has to be a conflict involved in that, possibility of success, but also uh, obstacles on the uh, road to success. So, But to, the obstacles uh, are not just exterior, they can also be interior to the moon child, his own uh, you know, driven uh, personality. Right. Uh, but you would have to have, as the protagonist, you would have to have some way of uh, uh, accessing that. So he right. could, you know, in drama system terms, he would have dramatic pulls. You know, is he the, uh, is he the eclipse child who's going to bring... Uh, the world into eclipse, or is he going to uh, free the world from darkness? You know, light versus dark, classic opposition. Right. And you're trying to uh, keep him on the on the path to uh, to illumination. So I guess we've uh, not only determined uh, the likelihood of success of this project uh, uh, with or without nitrous, and uh, come up with a campaign frame for it. So I think our work is done in this here podcast, and we can uh, uh, fly off toward our own uh, personal eclipses, and then we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. And remember, you must like cats. Drugs are okay. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ward off attacks on this podcast from Eclipse-born uber-villains with such patrons as... Jack Gulick. Jacob Ansari. Jake Moss. Martin Runquist. 
and Phil Bailey. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Air Udite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include Ken and Robin in gaming and Eliptonian food. And wielding fennel without proper church authority. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>